The World Health Organization estimates that 39 million people worldwide have died of HIV-related causes. But today, HIV and AIDS are no longer the death sentences they once were. A record 13 million people had access to life-saving antiretroviral treatment in 2013. And earlier this week, researchers at the University of Oxford reported that HIV has potential to become a weaker virus, meaning it could take longer for people to develop AIDS even if they don't have access to treatment. I'm Indiana News Desk anchor Joe Wren, and today on Noon Edition, we'll speak with experts about the advancements made in prevention and treatment of HIV, and we'll examine the outlook for those living with the virus. And we invite you to join the conversation after this hour's news. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Indiana News Desk anchor Joe Wren and today for Bob Zaltzberg. I'm here with co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael and today we are talking about developments in the prevention and treatment of HIV and AIDS. Monday marked the 26th annual World AIDS Day, a day to show support for people living with HIV and AIDS and remember those individuals who have died from the disease. The World Health Organization estimates that more than 39 million people have died from HIV-related causes worldwide, and by the end of last year, 35 million people were living with the virus. We have a couple of experts in the studio today to share their perspectives on the HIV and AIDS AIDS epidemic. epidemic. Brian Dodge is a professor in the Indiana University School of Public Health. He does behavioral science research on sexual health. Thanks for being here, Brian. Thanks for having me. Jill Stowers is the clinical lead manager of Positive Link, a program by IU Health Bloomington Hospital that provides prevention services and works with people infected by the virus in South Central Indiana. Hi, Jill. Thank you for having me. If you would like to, we also have Andrea Perez joining us by phone from Indianapolis. Andrea is the director of the Division of HIV, STD, and Viral Hepatitis in the Indiana State Department of Health. Hi, Andrea. Hi. If you'd like to join the conversation today, give us a call, 812-855-0811, or toll-free at 1-877-285-9348. You can also join our live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can also tweet us at noon edition, and we'll try to get you on the air. As we just said earlier, World AIDS Day was Monday here. We're talking about a disease that kills millions worldwide it's still relevant but sometimes it kind of brings up these feelings of oh it's it's we're talking about hiv aids again how, how do we keep it fresh and new brian well we were actually just talking about that and how much things have changed in some ways including for the better but how much in other ways things have stayed the same or if not gotten worse um i think there's still 
a lot of conversations to be had and a lot of work to do. You know, I this week I saw an image of a giant red ribbon, of course, the symbol for um, AIDS, I guess, well, and sure. it, yeah, uh, on the White House. And I am old enough that I flashed back to the Reagan era. Yeah. And I think about, you know, what a tremendous change that is from, you know, a, an administration that just wanted to pretend it didn't exist. And the band played on. Yes, exactly. <laughs> exactly. To now that giant symbol on our na- one of our nation's most important symbols. So sure. I, I, I took that as great progress, actually. I think so, too. But the fact that we still have large numbers of people globally, domestically, and even locally here in Indiana who are living with or affected by HIV, particularly disenfranchised and marginalized communities, I think there's still uh, social justice issues and access to treatment and care issues that are just as relevant today as they were in 1981. I would agree. Um, One of the things that we see with our clients at Positive Link, and we serve around 200 um, infected individuals through our client services program, is that by and large, over 70% of our folks are living on less than $20,000 a year. So while, you know, we're trying to address their health status and work on, you know, increasing their labs and their med adherence. There's so many other issues facing Mm -hmm. them that we are, you know, we take a very broad approach to what health is. And so, you know, we're dealing with nutrition issues and housing issues and all of those other things that go along with their HIV so that they can focus on their health. 200 clients over how large an area? Um, We provide care coordination in Monroe County and kind of the surrounding counties. Mm -hmm. We do have a handful that live outside of South Central Indiana, Mm -hmm. but predominantly in our kind of six-county region down here around Monroe County. I wanted to clarify that because I think many people have no idea how many people locally are struggling with this issue. Absolutely, and we do see that a lot. Um, and I think, and that's another thing we were talking about before the show started, was how frequently, um, you know, we, and we talk actually to a lot of Brian's classes, the students come in and are like, I didn't know HIV was a thing here. <laughs> and, <laughs> like, you know, it's a thing everywhere. Yeah, there are people here. It's a <laughs> right. thing here. Andrea, what are the numbers um, statewide? Well, at the end of um, 2013, we had just over 11,000 people. It was 11,087 people who we, um, you know, who we had reports for who were currently living in Indiana with HIV or an AIDS diagnosis. Um, Each year we see, and this is another thing that I think I was thinking about as we were just talking about, we've come so far, but yet, you know, is that in Indiana, we are staying pretty steady at right around 500 newly reported cases every year. So while I think, you know, the people that we have doing the work in Indiana are doing incredible work, the, the numbers are not going down mm-hmm. the way we would like to see them go down. I know in other parts of the world, um, many children are infected, and we don't seem to think about that quite so much in, in this part of the world. Can you tell us any statistics or, or demographics about the 500 new cases that you're seeing reported? Well, the, the vast majority are in the 20 to 40 age range. Um, and even in that, we're seeing it mostly in the 20 to 29 mm-hmm. year, um, 29 years of age. Um, 
mostly men. Mm-hmm. Um, in Indiana, it's about 80%, 80% of the cases are male, about 20% are female. Um, there's definitely a racial disparity, Yes. Um, both on, you know, when we look at whether it's women or men. Um, one of the most, most startling, you know, when we think about, because I think even looking at that percentage, you know, thinking, okay, well, we quote, only have 20% of the cases are amongst women. When we dive into the numbers among women in 2013, 59% of the HIV di- newly, you know, new diagnoses in Indiana for women were mm. among black women. Yes. And 67% of the AIDS at first diagnosis for 2013 among women were black women. I think that's so important to raise in mm-hmm. just the changing face of HIV, not only in our state, but nationally. You know, there was a s- report from Centers for Disease Control and Prevention a few months back that noted that rates across, you know, a number of different risk groups over time have, you know, stabilized or gone down, but that the one group who continues to skyrocket really astronomically are black men, and in particular, black men who have sex with men, and in particular, those that are low income or in poverty. And they did some really interesting analyses with data nationally showing that predictors like unemployment, previous incarceration, um, you know, living conditions were some of the strongest predictors of HIV infection. So it really does show that this is a is a disease that's concentrated um, in in disenfranchised communities. So then, how does the the prevention then shift to to reflect those type of statistics that we're hearing about? It's a good question because <laughs> prevention isn't the one. biggest thing on the radar. Yeah. Um, so we do prevention services. We do outreach and engagement. And we do HIV testing um, across a, f- a fairly large region of the state. And what we do is we don't say, hey, everybody, come get tested. We're very specific in trying to reach the highest risk populations um, to reach people who are the least likely to have access to medical care the least likely to have access to services. Um, We target them to where the epi data says the majority of our cases are coming from, Mm -hmm. as well as just our experience, because we are the prevention and the services provider in this region. We do know, you know, where those populations are and where, where we should be developing partnerships in the community to reach the people that need those prevention services the most. I would think people in their 20s now would have grown up knowing about AIDS. It's been around long enough now. And Brian says no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Not necessarily. I think, Jill, you might want to. We feel to, like they should. They should. Um, but they, have, they didn't live through those days of mm-hmm. seeing you know, their entire circle of friends or uh, loved ones, family members die from the disease. And it's, it's really always been a chronic disease mm-hmm. for them. Exactly, for them. Right? They've never... Like they just they have no recollection. I know for myself personally, my my first ever memory of HIV at all was watching the news with my parents in grade school and seeing a big red ribbon. And they were talking about this new disease and just being like, I don't I don't know what that is. Um, So learning about that as I grew up, it was very prevalent in the media. It was very Mm -hmm. prevalent in, you know, in school. And I I really find that 
people in their 20s, because they didn't live in that time period, mm. they don't have kind of any scope. They don't um, frequently don't know who Ryan White was, which you know, as an HIV provider, is just mm-hmm. something that I just and like a sucker, yeah. right? I'm like, it's just like a sucker punch every time yeah. that someone says, who is Ryan White? Oh. But there's, I think that as it's become less traumatic on our clients, it's become more difficult in prevention. So the perception has become, well, that's a bummer, but they can treat that. Right. Exactly. Yeah. That it's a condition that you can live with, not necessarily die from. And there's also... Which is great because that's by and large true. But it's still not But it's not something you want to have. The burden (laughs) of living with isn't necessarily as um, apparent as as some people may think. And there's also prevention fatigue among people who for so long in, um, you know, sort of the middle-aged generation who saw, you know, that, that sex without a condom equals death, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the messages, that fear-based messages, which weren't very effective either, but the, the messages we grew up with in previous generations um, compared to now where you see advertisements for someone climbing a mountain, um, you know, to just to uh, advertise Truvada and other HIV um, yeah. medications. It's, it's just very different. Andrea, what's the Indiana State Department of Health's role in all this? Well, I think one of the things, you know, is that we, we gather data, you know, and we, because all new cases of HIV um, in the state are supposed to be, by law, they're required to be reported here to us. And so, you know, a lot of those things that, jo- that Jill was mentioning about using the data to try and target those services, a lot of that data, I believe, comes from us, you know, it does. both Jill yeah. at Positive Link and other providers around the state, universities, a lot of people we'll will either utilize the, the statistics that we have available on our website or will call in or fax in, email in, request for data specific to, you know, whether it's a geographic area, whether it's a racial or ethnic population, a, you know, particular risk group. And those are, you know, that that's one of the big things that I think is is something that we do here from the state is letting people know what the state of the disease is in our state. The other thing is that we receive a fair amount of money from the federal government to to grant out to agencies like Positive Link and others around the state to be those boots on the ground, the people interacting with the communities, the communities that are at risk, the people who are already infected to provide either prevention services or support services to assist with um, health insurance, medication, those types of, you know, kind of wraparound services, making sure that we can get as many people tested who are at risk so that they know they're, you know, that they're infected, know their status, and then helping them to get to the care and treatment services that are available and trying to keep them there so that they're so that they're healthier. Right. And you mentioned federal funds. What about uh, state funds? What kind of uh, money out of our taxes goes to helping people in this situation? Well, the care coordination services that, that Jill mentioned earlier that are available statewide, that program is, is state-funded. There are some other state funds that come in that, that work on some other programs, some prevention work, um, staffing some of the people here who hopefully are an asset to, you know, to those in the community providing services. But the vast majority of the money um, in Indiana that is, spent, that is spent on prevention and care 
comes either from the Centers for Disease Control or HRSA, so from the Health and Human Services. Is, is that typical? Do you level. see that as you um, interact with other people who do what you do in different states, your colleagues? Um, is that a, a typical scenario for other states as well? It, you know, it really varies. It varies. I mean, the, the federal support is, you know, pretty common, you know, and it, it, the amounts kind of are dependent upon how, how big the epidemic is, how serious the epidemic is in each state. But the state dollars that are devoted, it's, it's really, you know, you, it's, it's hard to say that it's, you know, that there's kind of a common, uh, common way that it happens. It just really varies from state to state. Okay. And we'd love for everyone to join the conversation. Give us a call, 812-855-0811. You can also call toll-free, 877-285-9348. Of course, you can always join us on our live chat at WFIU.org. How's funding like with you here in Bloomington? Well, <laughs> it would especially be when nice you talk about federal or state dollars, that they're not always going to be there, are, are they? And we can speak um, to both treatment, yeah, care, and research. <laughs> yeah, I think in terms of um, services, so prevention and care services, we, I feel very grateful. We've been pretty fortunate in maintaining our level of funding. Um, by the same token, as we were talking about with the infection rate not decreasing, is that each year our caseload grows and each year, you know, we're doing more testing and um, we have been able to remain pretty stable. Um, one of the reasons is that we do spend a lot of time on finding the most effective way to leverage the various funding sources against each other. Um, they come through a variety of federal departments and then even at the state level they come from some different departments. Um, and finding the way to best use those resources to get the maximum number of services out into the community does take um, takes a little bit of, of, of wiggling things around and making, mm -hmm. making them all fit together. Mm -hmm. um, but in doing so, we do, um, you know, we do, I think that this, my staff do a fantastic job of really getting out into the community, getting those resources out into the community, and really using the dollars that we do receive to the best, uh, you know, to the best that we can. Mm -hmm. I'm, I, I'm concerned that we've been playing it a little fast and loose with the word epidemic. Andrea, would you still uh, really be able to classify the HIV AIDS infection rate as epidemic? I, globally? I, I, yeah, globally, I, mean, I, I would. Yeah. I would. Okay. 39 and, and, million you know, people. As, as Brian's saying, I think when we look at it, you know, big picture and, and knowing that there's always that that trickle down and that ripple effect. I think I think you have to look at it that way. Yeah. Okay. So even though our local numbers are, are kind of steady and and uh, uh, to some extent, but taking a global perspective. That's Keep in mind, these are also the reported cases. There are quite a right. few others out there that we don't know about or, mm -hmm. or or haven't been able to track yet, and that ties into research as well. And um, you know with behavioral and social science research on HIV. We're very fortunate in the United States to have National Institutes of Health, which is a large, one of the world's largest, you know, health research funding agencies. They devote significant resources to HIV AIDS. But um, as with across the board cuts in federal funding with sequestration and with other frustrating governmental level issues, um, the the amount, the resources, the amount of resources, level of competition for those resources has really become 
not only challenging, but in some ways um, debilitating. Or it's it's halted. Mm-hmm. I think our ability to get the new information that we need to continue to keep track of these issues, you know, um, such as the epidemiology and mm-hmm. rates of infection. And also, um, one other quick issue related to that is that um, with uh, with the cuts in funding, we've also been forced to get creative and innovative in finding other types of what used to be more non-traditional, but I think now we're becoming the more traditional sources of funding with um, corporate partnerships, for mm-hmm. example. We have a partnership with a large um, corporate entity that, that funds some of our sexual health research, Church and Dwight, uh, which is the parent company of Trojan Condoms, and then also um, just private foundations, Gates mm-hmm. Foundation, mm-hmm. alternative mm-hmm. sources, because just having served on a study section a couple weeks ago reviewing grants for NIH, I can tell you that um, you know less than half are discussed within a meeting, and of those, maybe the top um, five to ten will get funded. And that's really wow. frightening. Yeah. Well, I'm glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask next about private funding. You know, everybody remembers Elton John and and yeah. the great fundraising effort that he's, and I think he continues to do that. He does. Um, so, are you? Do you receive any funds from private foundations? I call it private, but you know what I mean. Um, sure. We do for research, and again, that's what's enabled us in some of these days to keep our lights on and <laughs> yeah. keep the wheels moving. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm sure those funds are, might be a little more flexible. Although, than some interestingly, in the case of Indiana, we've also been able to um, access HIV or NIH funding for research because we're a traditionally understudied area of the country, oh. Indianapolis in particular, and we have some of the highest rates of adverse health issues. You know, we're usually 49th out of 50 states in terms of some public health indicators. So being in Indiana does strategically position us for those federal funds when when they're available and when we're able to package it, the project correctly. But that said, um, increasingly, I think private funding is becoming a, a source of um, moving the field forward. Mm-hmm. Even just seeing researchers who are putting up these crowdfunding mm-hmm. websites, it's heartbreaking <laughs> to think of in some ways that you know, you're asking for spare change from people on the internet to, but you'd be surprised that turns into mm-hmm. hundreds of thousands of dollars. And and we're just having to get innovative during these tough times that people are, I think are experiencing across the board, certainly in care. And we certainly, um, you know, private donations, private foundations, we're in a very um, unique and wonderful position at Positive Link. There's several care sites across the state because we are part of IU Health Bloomington. Mm-hmm we do get the support of the hospital. And so, I mean, that's that's tremendous. And so we do have a lot of things that we are able to do that maybe other care sites in the state aren't able to do because we have that level of support um, in our work. But, I mean, we're doing a lot of the same things. Private foundations, mm-hmm. we're plugging together $5,000 here and $2,500 mm-hmm. there um, to pull our programs together and to fill gaps in where our other funding isn't a um, wonderful opportunity to plug the AIDS walk. You can save the date for April 10th. Yes. <laughs> uh, you know, we, we, we are. We're, we'll, we'll take your $20 and we'll put it with somebody else's $20. Mm-hmm. And we collaborate on that, yeah. too, IU and yeah. Positive Link, and mm-hmm. it's become a great, a real source of, you know, mm-hmm. of some extra incidental funds that are there yeah. when you need them. Absolutely. That, that hospital-assisted model, mm-hmm. um, does IU Health do that in all of their locations? 
They don't. We're actually um, fairly unique in what happens. There is um, IU Health Methodist has Life Care, which is a similar program. Um, they do a much more clinical social work um, and more medical based than what we do. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you look at the care sites across the state, we're really the the only one that has a very social service model. Mm-hmm. Holistic, more holistic approach. Right, that's uh-huh. also housed within a medical facility. And I think having those two pieces mm-hmm. together are really where we see a lot of the positive outcomes that we see and our clients are doing better than the state average in most of the health indicators that we look at. Mm-hmm. And I really think having both of those pieces is why a, a large reason of why that happens. Right. Brian, you touched on this earlier. I, I wanted to kind of bring this back up. The the decline of AIDS-related deaths, is that due to the, the drug intervention, or is it the change of how uh, the people are classified into the category of having AIDS in the, in the past so many years? Do we know that? It's a combination of factors. Do you want to mm-hmm. speak no, to that? No, go ahead. Well, I think certainly the, the advent of um, highly active antiretroviral treatment has has made this a disease in which people can live full and long lives as opposed to really what in the early days was seen as a death sentence. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think there are a number of factors. We also had this study come out last week about the course of the virus and whether it weakens over time. And this is an interesting, I just want to take a quick sec to, to chat about that. It's on the website for our episode today, actually. Um, That was a virology study that was looking at some historical um, samples of virus from Botswana and South Africa. And the epidemic in Botswana was about 10 years earlier than the epidemic in South Africa. And basically through a bunch of sophisticated analyses, the researchers found that over the course of time um, in South Africa, the, the strength of the virus began to weaken as it was passed from host to host, just mutations that mm-hmm. happen naturally. Um, that It's an interesting case study, but when we then hear sound bites of HIV is becoming weak and it, within our lifetime, mm-hmm. it could no longer require treatment. It's a really dangerous sound bite. Mm-hmm. There's a great book, it's called Virus Hunt by Dorothy Crawford. She is a virologist in Scotland. and. I read it just over Thanksgiving for, um, you know, to, 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 to learn more about this myself. But she actually traces the history of the virus by looking at viral samples back to what they think is the original. And, you know, there are debates about whether HIV has been around for hundreds of years and what, where it began and how it originated. But in Kinshasa, which was Leopoldville in colonial Belgian Congo, all of the historic, social and historical factors that came together, particularly colonialism and the terrors mm-hmm. of colonialism mm-hmm. in Belgian Congo, which just enabled in, in inoculating villages, an entire village with one syringe for immunizations, these things that happened historically mm-hmm. that were really like a Pandora's box um, for, for the, the origin of HIV and certainly the, the virus has mutated. It mutates with treatment, which is why if you're on treatment, you have to adhere to treatment or, you, mm-hmm. you know, you could potentially transmit um, a mutated virus, which is less responsive to trans, to uh, treatment. But but the that virology study is, of course, I think it's interesting <laughs> and encouraging to think maybe in two centuries the virus would be at a point where it would be, you know, think of it equivalent of catching the uh, common cold, 
but I don't think we're anywhere near that. And I mm-hmm. really would caution people, you know, not to um, think about foregoing treatment because of one a small study like right. that. We have to take a quick break, and then we'll be right back. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIU.org news. Welcome back to Noon Edition. I'm Joe Wren, and today for Bob Zaltzberg, I'm here, co-host Mary Catherine Carmichael, and today we're talking about developments in the prevention and treatment of HIV and AIDS. Our experts in the studio today, Brian Dodge, a professor from Indiana University School of Public Health. Jill Stowers is here with us as well, the clinical lead manager of Positive Link, and on the phone, Andrea Perez from Indianapolis, the director of the Division of HIV, STD, and Viral Hepatitis in the Indiana State Department of health. Thanks again for being here today. And don't forget, you can give us a call and take part in this conversation as well. 812-855-0811 or toll free at 877-285-9348. And you can also join us live in our chat room at WFIU.org. Oh, well, we talked. To, we were talking a little bit during the break, and I was very interested to, I think, of you guys working in partnership, um, Jill and Brian, and then certainly the Department of Health and bringing Andrea into it. But I understand you have lots of partners in the community. I'd love to hear more about your community partnerships. We do. Um, I think one of the most important things in just developing a program for anything, and certainly for HIV, is that you can't be an island. You know, <laughs> we're not going to do everything that every one of our clients could possibly need. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from the academic end, our staff is amazing at health education, and they are phenomenal social workers. And that doesn't always mesh really well with being a great researcher. And mm-hmm. so having someone like Brian that we can work with mm-hmm. um, is a huge asset to our services because we're able to really evaluate what we do. Um, But in terms of just, you know, and I think I kind of hit on with the prevention is that we're working with community partners who have, you know, we we have a substance use program. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're partnering with substance use providers all over our region to provide education and testing to their clients. Mm -hmm. And so we're partnering with Centerstone and some of the big names, but also with, you know, small offices that may just have, you know, they run one small group. we partner really closely with Walgreens because down in our southern region, there aren't any services, social services for people. But we partner with Walgreens because they're very committed to HIV, and that's a place that we can use so that we can go do testing. Mm. Um, and in services, 
you know, I would I would think that any social service provider in our region is probably referring their HIV infected folks to us, mm-hmm. and by, because we are the expert at that, and my staff do a phenomenal job. But by the same token, we maybe are not the best with supported employment, or we're maybe not the greatest at some other area, and so we do a lot of referral back and forth. Really, in all in all honesty, we're just trying to make fewer barriers for our folks to mm-hmm. be getting the care that they need, and so. You know, whoever that person is in whichever community we're in that does the best job at what they do, mm-hmm. we're trying to link in with them, build some kind of partnership where we're mutually helping each other out. And, and you know, at the end of the day, our clients do phenomenally better yeah, because sure. we have a community where we the providers are working together. I, I was surprised not to hear you list Planned Parenthood as one of your community partners. Do you work with Planned Parenthood? We do work with Planned Parenthood um, in terms of health education. We mm-hmm. typically do. They do have a health educator that mm-hmm. does sexual health. Um, and we do events. Typically, our events um, that are aimed at kind of college students, um, young adult age group is not is not a an area that we necessarily focus on. We do focus on young people, but in a much more targeted way than just young people. Um, So we do work with Planned Parenthood quite a bit um, because that is their area of expertise and they're great with, you know, the 20-somethings. I think it's interesting, though, that, you know, Planned Parenthood would come to mind quickly, but you've also got other partners that people wouldn't necessarily think of. And I just want to take a second to give a shout out to my students and the... (laughs) 501 assessment and planning class because each semester the Master of Public Health students work with all of us on doing this assessment of HIV in southern Indiana and in central Indiana and um, they put together a very you know elaborate process of, of getting the epidemiology behaviors resources interventions available within these regions and learn a lot in the process and what form does that take do they um like ask questions they have they They go out they're on their own we kind of throw them out in the world and tell them (laughs) you're gonna i'm sure many of them have have called you up in indianapolis andrea they've (laughs) called positive links phone many many times we've actually had to tell them you know don't wait until the last day of the semester but in the in the midst of that i was just talking with them a couple days back about some of the bullet points if they were to you know be able to say something about what they learned in that that I could share with you. And and they were just above and beyond students are really impressed with the level of resources in central Indiana and also in in southern Indiana, again, where some people don't even know we have an HIV epidemic, the amount of resources that are available. But some students also asked, you know, are there other resources that particularly thinking of differences between urban and rural populations that Mm -hmm. aren't being tapped into like churches? And Jill and I were just talking about this and before we began and Jill said, oh, we've got the churches with We do, we have Gifts of Grace, which is our adoption, holiday adoption program our clients. So we adopt um, each of our clients and their family members out. Um, And that is, I would say, probably 70% of the people who are adopting our clients for the holidays come from local churches. And it's not that immediate assumption um, of where HIV programs are partnering. And I think that, you know, I guess one of our our, our pre-discussions that we had um, is that we kind of make this assumption that you know HIV providers are in this camp and churches are in that camp and whoever is you know in another camp over mm-hmm. here, but really when you get down to like what we are each doing, you know we've been able to partner with a number of churches um, of all denominations because we're approaching it with where are we what do we have in common, mm. um, and I think a lot of times in developing partnerships people kind of 
want to get their point across or like, I want to partner with you and here's what I would like you to do. And we've really been able to, in this community, everybody to just come to the table on what do we have in common and what do we really want? And, you know, particularly with Gifts of Grace, it's about compassion and that our clients have a good holiday season. And there's been a phenomenal outpouring from the local faith community in supporting that program. If, if any individual is interested in participating in that, is that an opportunity? Absolutely. And how would they go about doing that? Um, they could call our office. It's 353-9150. And we, or they can email me at jstowers at iuhealth.org, and we'll get them connected. <laughs> we do still have about 30 clients that need adopted for the holidays, so that would be a wonderful opportunity for someone that wanted to be involved. Okay, great. And speaking of resources, I want to touch upon this, too, and Andrea, you can jump in if you'd like. About Are you seeing a lot of people coming up needing help with discrimination, HIV and, and AIDS discrimination? We we do still see that. Um, not a lot of times... A lot of times people don't want to be the face of that fight. So a lot of times when Mm -hmm. our clients are discriminated against, even when they very, very clearly legally would do fine in this case, they Mm -hmm. don't want to do it. Do you Um, refer those people to the ICLU or what do you do? um, We do. uh, We've worked with legal services and there's a couple of private attorneys that have um, kind of taken some pro bono work for a few of our folks. Um, that has been wonderful. We really see a lot more um, just kind of institutionalized stigma um, that hasn't hasn't necessarily gone away. And I will say that we don't, you know, we don't see a lot of just outward anger or, you know, like it's not, it's not the 80s anymore. I think that's yeah. something Brian and I talk right. about. Yeah. You know, there's, it's not kind of in that same manner, yeah. but we see this, this underwriting I'm still asked a lot, and I've worked stigma. in HIV for There's 15 stigma. years, mm-hmm. and I'm still frequently asked by people, like, ooh, are you worried that you're going to get AIDS? Yeah. Just, no, I'm not engaging in any behaviors that will put me at risk, <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. Thank mm-hmm. goodness there have been, you know, leaps and bounds in terms of policies and, and mm-hmm. um, you know, workplace protection and those types of issues, but I think there's still a great deal of stigma, and there's st- stigma in different ways. Uh, there's stigma associated with having HIV, there's stigma associated with being on medication and someone finding mm-hmm. your medication. There's mm-hmm. stigma associated with being a survivor yes. from a generation mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. everyone else in your network died. And there's people that are dealing with depression, even PTSD mm-hmm. from those experiences that they had in those early days. And uh, so we've come a long way, but I think there's still work, a lot of work to do. We've got a caller on the line. Let's go ahead and go to Valerie. Hi, Valerie. I know you're calling from Owen County. Yeah, this kind of relates back to early in the program. I was, I'm, you know, I'm an old person. I went to high school back in the 60s, and uh, then in the 1980s, I did lose a number of friends to AIDS, you know, all of whom were gay men, for what that's worth. But um, somebody said something about that these 20-something aged people frequently have never even heard of HIV or AIDS, and I haven't heard anyone mention in, in your discussion of the role of various social service agencies in education. You know, what about the public schools? When I was in school, at least in junior high or high school, we had to take a health class, and things like basic sexually transmitted diseases were covered, and, you know, here you've got this captive audience of an age group that is, you know, potential sexually active and or substance abusers. I mean, don't they teach this in school? Well, Valerie, I thank you, first of all, for your call. I really appreciate you bringing this up. I think the bottom line is, 
yes and no. <laughs> it varies so widely, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. not only within the state, but within regions of the state, let alone nationally. Um, we've done ass statewide assessments of sexuality education and even health education in schools. And there are scenarios running the gamut between someone who has an in-school nurse who teaches, you know, comprehensive information regarding sexuality. And there are schools where um, they're basically forbidden to ask questions, even if a student asks a, a question about um, HIV, which is actually mandated to be taught in schools. Um, and I just, this is a great point to, to give a pass along a reminder as well that HIV is very important, obviously, but it's just one small component of sexual health. Mm -hmm. Very and good point, sexual health, not only in terms of other sexually transmitted infections, other uh, unintended pregnancy, the usual suspects, but sexual health also in encompassing sexual rights, the right to be a sexual person, um, the right to experience pleasure, the right to live your life, you know, with a partner of, of you know, whatever partner that happens to be. And, and we're still struggling with these issues. And, and you're right, Valerie, I just think the schools are such an obvious place where we want that sort of education to take place. But unfortunately, it's not necessarily always the case that it is, or sometimes it's actually would be better if it wasn't because they're not always giving scientific, medically accurate, age-appropriate well, sure information. True, but the point still is that, you know, even with the you know, all the advancements in pharmaceuticals and all that, this still is a disease that yes. people die from. Yes. It's a public health issue, definitely. It is. Absolutely. And the cost of these pharmaceuticals, either to the individual or their families or the public health system, is, is enormous. Mm -hmm. And I just can't believe that every teenager in public schools doesn't get a very serious, you know, education on the fact that this disease is out there and it exists and I mean I just can't believe it but yeah. I guess I'm not quite up with how things run these days I would say that um, as a I have a child who has been through the MCCSC school system and they do yes. a bang-up job yes. I have to say yes, they do. Is fantastic yeah. So I, again, I think that goes to Valerie, or or, or to your point, uh, Brian. It's, it's maybe hit or miss, but at yeah. least you know we can feel good locally that I think yeah. we're. But in the places like Monroe County, where we do have champions like my colleague Dr. Catherine Sherwood in, in mm -hmm. alliances right. that have fought to get comprehensive sexuality mm -hmm. education in the schools, again, one county below us, the situation is very different and. And it seems like we have pockets of, mm -hmm. of variation, yeah. which is not the, the case with many other school-based disciplines. You know, where would we have that much variation in terms of math? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. <laughs> well, give us a call if you'd like to participate in this this uh, conversation. Uh, we don't have a lot of time left in the show, about 10 minutes, but we'd love to hear from you. Our number is 812-855-0811. You can always call us toll-free at 877-285-9348. We love tweets at Noon Edition or join our live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. And I see we have another phone call from uh, Bloomfield. Razzie. Razzie, are you there? You're on Noon Edition. Well, maybe not right now. We'll wait. Hello. Oh, there he Hello. is. Hi, Razzie. Hi, Mary. Yes. 
Hi, this is Randy. Oh, hi, Randy. How are you? <laughs> Good. How are you? I'm well, thank you. Good to hear your voice. Hi, Joe. Welcome. Hi, thank you. Um, my question is uh, about a friend of mine. His name is Mikey Jordan. And uh, he's such a good friend, I have to buy tickets to go see him. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was diagnosed with HIV, and uh, Lord knows he's had a lot of girlfriends. But uh, anyway, uh, how can somebody with that disease last and, and still thrive the way he does? And, uh, I mean, it's kind of a, an amazing situation, I know, with an athlete who's been diagnosed with HIV to still be able to perform at a kind of a peak performance, you might say. It's good to be rich, and, Randy. It's good to be rich. <laughs> well, really, I mean, I, I really kind of, I don't understand the, the situation there, how this works. Is it uh, maybe he has the right kind of physician? He's probably got excellent um, He probably does have excellent care. care. Yeah, and he most probably agree. received his HIV di- diagnosis early. Um, and when nationally, treatment. you know, the average length of time from diagnosis with HIV to an AIDS diagnosis is 10 years. That is extended. The earlier you find out, the more able you are to care for yourself, how stable, mm-hmm. you know, your nutrition is, your other health, that you're on treatment sooner. So there's a lot of factors. Yeah. And Randy, you know, that. you made the point yourself that he's a, you know, a peak performance kind of guy. So um, those people have a lot of interaction with physicians on a regular basis. So I right. would I would guess that as soon as he started exhibiting any kind of symptom, um, that they were they were uh, very proactive in his treatment. I'd also say, though, Randy, there are probably people in your everyday life around you that are functioning pretty optimally that you might not know their HIV status, but that is the level that we've gotten to now in terms of our uh, medication and treatment that we are able to suppress the level of the HIV virus to the point that it's undetectable. And for those people, again, as long as they're adherent to the medication and as long as they keep themselves healthy in other ways, um, and now with pre-exposure prophylaxis, which are similar drugs mm-hmm. that we're using for prevention purposes, we're, we're, we're able to uh, get people to the point where they are able to live at peak performance like Michael Jordan, and uh, it's no longer a death sentence. Thanks for your call, Randy. I appreciate it. Well, thank you, Mary. Have a good day. You too. You too. Okay, Thanks. Brian, would you expand on what you just said about the prophyla- the pre what did you say? Pre? Pre-exposure prophylaxis. PrEP. Okay. So talk to me about that. About PrEP. So PrEP is uh, basically a, a combination of some of the same medications that are used to treat HIV-positive patients, but they're used um, <laughs> before becoming infected. And so for people who are at high risk, and there's Limited knowledge thus far, too, I would say. There's quite a bit of enthusiasm and and excitement, but at the same time, I think we still have a lot more to learn about PrEP. But in the studies that we do have, um, primarily with adult men who have sex with men, in serodiscordant relationships where one partner is negative and one partner is positive, if the negative partner uh, begins treatment and adheres to treatment appropriately, Uh, um, over the course of time, 
along with you know taking other just precautions with with staying healthy, that it dramatically reduces the possibility, the likelihood of transmission from the positive partner to the negative partner. And again, I think it's a it, it's a great innovation. People in the research world are going wild over it. Um, mm-hmm. But at the same time, I think we've got to remember, first of all, we're not entirely sure about the you know long-term issues associated with being on PrEP and also that there are other sexually transmitted infections for which PrEP does not provide any protection for, which a condom would. And um, in, in situations where there is a level of risk, to think of using PrEP as an additional tool along with, you know, a palette of other preventative measures, for example, condoms or, or strategic positioning where, you know, you are at lower risk of infection from mm-hmm. a positive partner. Thank you for clarifying sure. that. We need to clarify one other thing. Uh, we said the wrong person. We were we were saying Michael Jordan. It should be Magic Johnson. Magic Johnson. Yes, they have right, the we same. We clarify that. Yeah, we have the same initials. Uh, this is when we need Bob who called in to straighten us out. Thanks for calling in, Bob. Bob knows I'm not a big sports fan. So well, this took... is, you know, this is one of those moments where that just showed. I so, took the name and didn't really think twice about it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Right. Well, yeah. So, yes. Right. When uh, he first said Mikey J, I thought he literally was talking about someone he knew. I don't oh, know. <laughs> <laughs> well, we only have uh, about four more minutes to kind of end up here. You know, we talked about World AIDS Day being Monday. You know, how can people get involved? What can people do? What, what's the biggest misconception? What You know, what's the message kind of in, in retrospect here of what we need to get out today? You know, I think in terms of World AIDS Day, um, our, the, the theme has been getting to zero, and that, that is, you know, that is what we're trying to do. We, mm-hmm. we want to decrease the infection rates. We want to, you know, keep people from dying. Um, in terms of being involved, there are a number of ways to be involved with HIV um, in a lot of different in a lot of different ways. Whether it's you know working with Brian, he loves his research, and that's awesome, um, or working with us in more frontline types of things. There's also the Community AIDS Action Group, which meets monthly. Um, and does a number of more awareness type focuses um, throughout, kind of throughout the region, a little more predominant in Monroe County. How about you, Brian? Closing thoughts. Yeah. I think, um, again, we've come leaps and bounds. I think oh I've gosh, said that more yeah. than one time in this talk, but uh, in, in terms of where we were at in the earliest days of the HIV epidemic. But I think we do still have a long ways to go, and I do. I just want to repeat that um, message, and I, my colleagues Michael Reese, Debbie Herbenick, others at the mm-hmm. Center for Sexual Health Promotion, where HIV is one aspect of sexual health, of health in general, um, but it, it's not the only aspect. And I hope that as HIV has historically impacted more marginalized, disenfranchised, underrepresented populations, that we can continue to think about the health and well-being of those individuals. Just thinking, for example, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and other individuals um, who, you know, the, the funding that we have to study their health depends on framing it within HIV, but there are so many other issues than HIV that are also important in those people's Mm -hmm. lives. And Andrea, we just have a couple minutes. You have a few closing thoughts. Well, I think one of the things is, you know, just thinking about the the caller who mentioned the schools and finding it hard to believe, you know, people in their 20s don't know about it. I think one of the most simple things that anybody can do is to just be willing to talk about it. 
you know, to be open to having discussions, whether it's with your children, whether it's with, you know, your neighbor, whomever, because I think, you know, also we were talking about the stigma that still exists. It has, it has gotten a lot better, but it is, you know, a lot of the, the progress that we are not making, I think, goes back to stigma in, in many ways. And so yeah. that, that is something that you don't have to have a research background. You know, you don't have to work here where I work. You don't have to have the knowledge and the skills that Jill and her staff have it's just the the willingness to be open and and have discussions Mm -hmm. so if you could buy billboards across the state you just say hiv talk about it yes yes (laughs) (laughs) and be sexually healthy yeah (laughs) (laughs) right all right well thank you all for being here today brian andrea jill really appreciate your time and uh thoughts for this edition of Noon edition. That's Joe. Thanks for being here today. Thank you for having me. Thanks for letting me fill in. It was fun. Yes. Uh, That's all the time we have. uh, Alongside Mary Catherine Carmichael, our engineer is Mike Pascash, our producer Lacey Scarmana. This is Noon Edition on WFIU, and don't forget the discussion continues online at wfiu.org/noonedition. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville Communications, serving Southern Indiana with fiber gigabit internet and digital IPTV. More information at smithville.net. And from School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. publichealth.indiana.edu.